episode 252, the not-so-obvious thing that musculoskeletal care and a four-minute mile have in common. Today, I speak with Chad Gray, who is CEO over at IMC, Integrated Musculoskeletal Care. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Musculoskeletal issues, otherwise known as MSK issues, account for something like 20% of the cost to any given health plan or employer or anyone else who's paying the bill for healthcare. That's like one in every $5, which is meaningful when you consider million-dollar drugs and diabetes and all the other things that a purchaser of healthcare can write checks for. MSK is a big cost kahuna. Today, I talk with Chad Gray, who is the CEO of IMC, Integrated Musculoskeletal Care. Interestingly, Chad says that the problem with MSK in this country isn't a cost problem, usually. It's a quality problem. It's a problem of patients getting a whole lot of care that doesn't actually relieve their symptoms or underlying condition. This is what MSK care and the four-minute mile have in common, besides the blindingly obvious necessity of healthy bones to run fast. Everybody thought it was impossible for a human to run a four-minute mile, until somebody did. And once that happened, it was like a dam opened and lots of people began breaking that previously impossible time. It's conventional wisdom that MSK problems are mostly going to turn into intractable chronic conditions that ultimately result in surgery, which still doesn't in many cases cure the symptoms or underlying problem. Chad Gray and his team over at IMC may have broken the four-minute mile when it comes to inventing a systemic approach to MSK care that actually works. Prepare for the dam to burst. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Chad Gray, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you for having me today, Stacey. Just to start out at the very beginning here, today we're talking about musculoskeletal conditions. How big is this from a cost perspective if we're talking about American healthcare? It's typically somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 to 22% of total health plan spend in the U.S. For most employers or uh, self-funded plans, this represents either their number one, number two, or number three single biggest pain category. And what we're talking about here are like lower back pain, knees and hips primarily? Yeah. If you take the, you know, the traumatic stuff kind of out of the equation and, you know, the fractures, dislocations and infectious diseases, things like that of the bone. You're left with, uh, you know, low back pain, hip pain, shoulder pain, knee pain. You know, those are kind of the big four or five areas where a lot of the money's spent. And then a smattering of, you know, ankles, wrists, elbows, things like that. But uh, sprain strains, both acute pain, subacute pain and chronic pain. So about one fifth approximately, like one out of five patients who are seeking health care for anything <laughs> are seeking health care for something to do with this musculoskeletal category. One in three. One in three. One in three. One in three. Yeah, the walking around prevalence of this condition, if I walk down the street in any town USA and I stop 10 random people and I ask 10 random people, have you had back pain, knee pain, hip pain, shoulder pain in the last 30 days, I'm going to get three to four of every 10 answering that affirmatively. 
Wow. So I was talking to Lee Lewis a couple of episodes ago, who is the chief strategic officer over at the HTA now and in former lives worked with many, and still does, many large employers, jumbo employers. And one of the things that he had been talking about is, you know, you don't want to boil the ocean. What you want to do is focus on the disease categories or the spends that are highest because those have the opportunities you know, if we're talking about something that affects one in three employees or one in three taxpayers or one in three Americans, the juice is worth the squeeze, if you will. Yeah, without a doubt. It's it's certainly top of mind, I think, now for most payers because you know, it's kind of risen to the top of the heap, if you will, from a cost perspective. And and the frequency of this particular circumstance in healthcare is so incredibly high. Uh, you know, for example, if I'm a primary care physician, uh, the most common reason someone's going to walk in my door today is pain as a primary symptom. And the most common reason for pain as a primary symptom is a musculoskeletal event. And how are we doing here based on some sort of third-party analysis? I think when you look at the quality metrics, you really begin to figure out that we don't have a cost problem here. I mean, that's where everybody tends to focus, especially if you're talking to brokers, consultants, and ultimately payers. I mean, they always want to know, well, how do I lower the cost? Well, we don't really have a cost problem in this domain. What we have is a quality issue or a quality problem. We've got 50% of the people that have had a condition that will reenter the system within 12 months after being treated. So there's a 50% recurrence rate in this particular population of healthcare seekers. We've got about 45% of the people that are currently in the system that have failed previous levels of care and are not resolving their condition. So they're moving into what's called a chronic condition category. You can clearly see from the number of people entering the system, from the number of people that are escalating into chronic condition categories, and from the rate of recurrence being at 50% at one year and nearly 80% at three years, that the traditional or current usual care system or process is not effectively managing or treating this population. And then when you combine with that, the fact that we've seen two to 300% increases in surgical rates, four to 500% increase in uh, imaging rates, 600% increase in injection rates, and a three to 400% increase in the addiction to opioids in the last 10 years, we're throwing the kitchen sink at it. We're giving it everything she's got, Captain, but we're not stopping the rise in cost and we're not quelling the incidence or the prevalence of this condition in our populations. We're truly not doing a good job of managing this at the population level. Wow. So the number of surgeries in this country has gone up two to 300%, and the recurrence rate is still 45%. So somebody gets a surgery and they're still coming back for additional care? You got it. Within 12 months after that procedure, there's a 50% guarantee they're back in the system with the exact same diagnosis again. Yikes. Not a favorable landscape. Why? I think the most influential and significant variable or factor here is misdiagnosis. 40 plus percent of all the cases in the system today are, are being misdiagnosed. We don't have a clear standard around how we assess or examine these patients. It's highly variable. Uh, what methods or what strategies are used in the assessment model. And so precision diagnosis is not something that we see in this particular domain of healthcare. You know, you've got the concept of referred pain, I think, really confounding the heck out of providers. Referred pain meaning if it hurts locally, then everybody kind of gets it right. Let's say you've got low back pain and it just hurts in my lower back. Well, everybody knows you got a low back pain problem. The challenge there is that low back pain conditions, let's say herniated disc, for instance, and 50% of the cases won't produce any back pain at all. It'll just produce extremity pain. So it may make my hip hurt or my thigh hurt or my knee or my ankle hurt, but it won't make my back hurt at all. And because we don't have clear training, 
standards and assessment standards in medicine around this particular area of, of healthcare, we have an unusually high rate of folks getting the diagnosis wrong. So they'll direct treatment to the hip when the hip hurts, but 71% of the time when you've got hip pain as a primary symptom, it's actually the low back pain referring there. Or 33% of the time, the knee hurting is actually a referred pain from the lumbar spine. We don't have examiners in the system today that are trained to identify root cause and source of symptom. And so we have a lot of treatment, a lot of care being directed towards the wrong body part or body region. I am definitely understanding, Chad, that underlying all of this, let's just say, not optimal circumstances is the fact that patients are not being, as you said, precisely diagnosed or there's not precision diagnostics. How do you do that? I guess I mean maybe at the micro level, but also the macro level. You know what I mean? Like if I'm an an employer, say, or a payer of some kind, and I have my whole entire patient population that's running around out there, one in three have some sort of muscular skeletal something or other going on, and probably a significant number of them are not properly diagnosed, so they are getting sent down for surgeries that they may not need and getting costly treatment that might actually be harmful. What do you do? This seems pretty daunting. That's where we came into play. We really set out to, first of all, create a new standard of care. Let's change the medical management model. And and to do that, you start by taking what's identified in the scientific literature as a best practice and deploying it into these provider platforms. And you drop these best practices in and you measure the living heck out of them. You see what sort of impact they have on people's pain, function, and disability inside these standardized models where you're deploying What the peer science says is clearly the best way to properly assess and then diagnose and then ultimately stratify or select treatment for patient populations. Let me just interject there. So I just want to make sure that I understand it. So effectively, what you're saying is you take a whole lot of data and you're looking at, I guess, the physiological characteristics of a patient. This patient has the following five symptoms and then you're looking at what treatment they got and then whether it worked or not and then assessing best practices from there. Now, you start first with the diagnosis. So you got to get the diagnosis correct. And to get the diagnosis correct and to scale that capability across a a population, you have to have intertestor reliability. You have to have an assessment model or process or method that allows subsequent examiners to come to the same conclusion. For instance, if I take you with low back pain and I walk you in the door of one of our practices or clinics and they examine you, and then I walk you out the door and I fly you across the country to another one of our clinics in, let's say, San Francisco. And I walk you in the door there and I let that other examiner take a look at you and assess you. They should both come to the same conclusions about what your condition is. Ultimately, that precision in diagnosing the condition, that reliability between examiners and the precision in their diagnostic model will allow them to select the treatment that's appropriate for you as a low back pain patient. That standardized model has to be applied across providers and across geographies to take something like this to scale and allow it to serve multiple payer employer populations in this country. I totally get it. So it all boils down to ensuring that everyone is diagnosing in exactly the same way. Because if you're not doing that, then A, (laughs) all the data you're collecting downstream is, let's just say, incredibly noisy because you don't know. It's polluted. Yeah. But this also could be a reason. I was talking to Dr. Joe Selby, uh, who's the head of PCORI, the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. And one of the things that he said about musculoskeletal, especially 
especially low back pain and, and surgery or back pain and surgery was that it was really difficult. Like nobody could figure out when surgery was actually warranted. Like they, they had concluded, I think it was something like 50% of back surgeries are not warranted. And I, I didn't reference that. So it's somewhere in that range. And he said it was really messy to try to figure out they had a sense of this, but they weren't exactly sure how to determine for any individual patient whether surgery was warranted with any stake in the ground kind of certitude. It sounds like the reason for that is exactly what you're saying, that because everybody's diagnosing patients differently, that you can't figure out stuff like that. No, without consistency in how we assess and ultimately diagnose these things, when that is highly variable, then the treatment that follows is highly variable. If the treatment isn't matched to the patient, then the outcome is going to be highly variable as well. Well, you can imagine trying to figure out how to track all of that in a system is nearly impossible. The, the level of noise, as you put it, and pollution in the data is so incredibly significant that you can't possibly take existing healthcare data and figure out what's broken and what's wrong. It's impossible. We've had a data science team working on this for 10 years, and it's nearly impossible to kind of remove the noise and the static and, and ultimately the pollution and drill down into it and figure out who's a high value provider and who isn't. What you have to do is basically redesign and start over. You start with a clear standard. It's based on best practices from the peer review science, and you deploy that into practices, and then you measure the living heck out of what's happening inside of them. And you constantly react and adjust to that data under a highly standardized model. When you do that over time, you begin to clearly be able to see outlier events that are popping up on the radar and you can react to them. In that sort of standardized and rigorously measured model, you now for the first time ever have the capability of, of guaranteeing that you've got the right diagnosis, you've matched the treatment to the patient at the right time, you've got the best possible outcome, and by the way, now you've removed all the static and the noise, and now we have meaningful, what I call clean healthcare data that allows us to make predictable decisions and assumptions on what we're going to need from a resource perspective and what sort of money it's going to cost us to deliver that. And what does that assessment look like? Like if I'm actually, you know, say I'm a patient and I walk into a clinic that is using the precision diagnostic tools or process that you have, how does that look to the patient? And then how does it look to the clinician? I mean, is it like a algorithm behind yes. the scenes or, or what? It's a rules-based method. So it's, it's, we use what's called a response-based assessment. So a patient comes in and we'll pick a, a specific use case here. Let's say low back pain, herniated disc with pain that is radiating into the lower back, buttock, and all the way down the leg to the foot. Okay, most people don't get that diagnosis incorrect. They know that's a pinched nerve. The question is, where does it belong? Does it need an injection? Is that a transfemoral epidural steroid injection I need? Does it need a surgery? Is that disc fragmented or broken beyond repair and no needle or no amount of movement or physical therapy is going to resolve it? Or is this resolvable under a movement-based protocol that can be administered by my primary care doctor under their self-care tutelage and advice? Or does it need to be escalated into a PT or Cairo movement-based protocol? That stratification into movement-based treatment, chemically-based treatment, the epidural steroid injection, or structural treatment here, the surgeon, is really what's missing in medicine. We teach providers how to take that case when it walks in the door, run that lumbar spine through a series of repeated movements, and based upon the response to those movements, make a very reliable prediction about who needs the injection, who needs the surgery, and who needs the movement-based protocol. 
and we steer them towards the right solution at that moment in time. That's one clear example. A second example may be this. Someone comes in with primary, let's say, hip and thigh pain, no low back pain at all. That may be a hip or it may be a lumbar spine. Our examiners are trained immediately to take that patient through a series of repeated movement tests of the lumbar spine to see if they can modify, alter, or change the symptom in the hip and the thigh. If they cannot, then we rule out the spine and we go right to the hip. And then they go through that same process at the hip. They move the joint system that is the potential root cause or source. And they monitor how it responds to that movement. And those responses tell us whether it's chemical, structural, or mechanical and can be resolved with just simple movement-based protocols. Obviously, you're, you're tracking data the whole way down the line, you know. So after the diagnosis happens, then the patient is treated based on the best that you know now relative to what works best, whether it's, what you say, movement, chemical or structural. But then you still obviously are collecting data as they go to ensure that I guess they're responding to that. Yes. So we collect patient reported outcomes data that's specific to the body part that they are suffering with or from. We'll collect pain, function, and disability level for that member or patient at every encounter of care. From first visit all the way to the point of resolution, we'll collect the data that tells us how they're progressing through the treatment through the system. And these are patient-reported metrics. They are not provider-reported metrics. These are patient walks through the door of one of these practices, they're handed an iPad or a tablet, they fill out their standardized scales that are validated by the scientist to be able to measure clinical effectiveness and progress. And at every encounter, that data flows up into the cloud for us and is in our database. We then marry that data with the financial data from the medical plan for the employer we're working with. And we, we integrate both clinical quality metrics and patient-reported data with the transactional data on the claim side. And we look for correlations or improvements in outcome and ultimately cost. And that's how we verify or validate that our patients are actually progressing through the system more effectively, more efficiently than, than usual care is capable of doing. And that the payer is actually getting value or an ROI for the investment that they're making in this particular model. Okay, so that was some pretty heavy foreshadowing there, but but let's get into the results that you tend to see here. How often are patients, you know, in quotes, cured and the lower back pain or, or whatever does not actually become a chronic condition? So 40% are actually reclassified and diagnosed as a different body part. So there's your first opportunity to really drive greater value and better outcomes. So we don't have wasted unnecessary PT or surgery or injection. We start to strip away all the unnecessary activity that goes on. And what you tend to see happen is this. About 92 to 94 percent of your population, they're mechanical. They need a movement-based protocol to, to solve or mitigate their condition. About 50 percent of those can be taught how to self-manage it themselves and not escalate them in any other conservative care or any other specialty care. And so you tend to see about 92 to 94% fall into that bucket and about 50% of them are self-care capable. The other 50% need escalation into PT or Cairo. You've got about two to 3% that wind up needing to escalate into chemical-based care or injection-based care. And about two to 3% that wind up needing some sort of a, a consult with a specialist because they're truly a structural defect that needs a surgery. Those are the, the breakouts for the a population of any given 100 MSK sufferers. When you translate that into real dollars, what you begin to see happen then is about a 50 to 55% reduction in the total plans for the lives going through this model versus those going through conventional care or those going through on-site, near-site care or direct primary care. There's a, a pretty dramatic shift in the both quality 
and the utilization of, of procedural care and ultimately the cost in this particular population that's receiving this sort of standardized care versus the usual care model that's out there. Well, if you can cut the cost down by 50%, and if the typical spend is 20% of the total, then basically you're reducing total spend by about 10%. Yeah, that's a 10% return back to the payer on their entire health plan spend. I mean, the human cost here is real. Anyone who has suffered from lower back pain or knows somebody who has suffered from back pain or any of these muscular skeletal, I mean, I think one of the reasons why it is so a pervasive, but B, why everybody keeps going back is that it is nothing if not incredibly limiting and painful. Having these patients not become victims of their physiology here, it does seem to be really meaningful from that aspect as well. I think the best quote I ever heard was from a, a plant manager uh, at one of our employer facilities. He said, look, I'll take a, a guy with diabetes all day long over a guy with a low back problem because the guy with diabetes can work circles around the guy with a bad back. You know, there's your first indicator that they realize that it affects them highly from a productivity and a morale perspective. The other, I think, troubling trend and pattern that, that really points us out is the opioid crisis. The single most common reason for an opioid prescription in the world is low back pain. And it just so happens to be the most mismanaged diagnosis or condition in, in medicine today. And so it's no wonder that we have an opioid crisis in this country and that we're killing, you know, 50 to 60,000 people a year with a drug that clearly was identified 20 years ago as not being effective at managing non-malignant pain. But yet we were still using it. We were using it because people were frustrated. Providers were frustrated. They didn't know what else to do for patients because they didn't have an answer or a solution for the suffering that was going on. And it, it truly does create suffering. I mean, these people have lost quality of life. They've lost in some instances their jobs, their families, their livelihood. They've lost everything because of chronic pain. And if you look at it, almost every one of their circumstances and move upstream from it, it was a direct result of the classic mismanagement of this condition and the failure to be able to appropriately match the patient to the treatment they needed. The place that muscular skeletal care has been in this country for so long, which is just really under-investigated considering the toll that it takes on Americans. Why do you feel like that is? Everybody knows that muscular skeletal is a huge part of both our spend and, and just causes so much trouble for so many people. And yet we are still, you know, across the board in this country, so woefully far behind. As you said, like you have an answer here. It is a well-proven answer. Why are we still taking 17 years <laughs> From the time that the answer is discovered to it being rolled out across the country, like you'd seem particularly in this case, just given all these negative consequences, that we'd be moving a little bit faster. You can lay the blame firmly in the laps of a couple of different organizations or industries. On the medical side of things, providers truly don't have the opportunity and the time to keep up with the research. I mean, you know, we, we all seem to operate from this fundamental position or belief that, you know, providers are inherently capable. They have the training. They're all science-based. They're following best practices. Everything that's published in all these journal articles is now being translated into clinical practice. And that's just not the reality of the, of the universe. I'm sorry. They write 3 million peer-reviewed articles a year in the world, 20,000 on low back pain alone. Now, what physician, primary care or otherwise, has time to go in and read all those articles and then transfer that knowledge base into their clinical practice, measure what happens there, and adjust to it and ultimately get better and better and better in a continuous learning loop at optimizing their practice? None that I know of. On the other side of the aisle, you've got 
broker consultant advisors out there trying to help employers build a better plan design, bolt on new capabilities, find new innovative strategies. And they have little to no understanding of the science either. They don't know what the science says about what's the best practice. They find a new shiny object somewhere and they deploy it and hope that it wins. But they don't have any way or method for validating all of these services and products that exist in the marketplace and making sure that they actually can drive the kind of value they're supposed to. And so you've got these huge gaps in capability and understanding and transparency on both sides of the aisle. Providers truly don't know what they don't know from a science perspective, and they don't have any access to financial data. They don't know what it costs to manage a population of 100, 1,000, a million MSK sufferers. The broker consultants know that it costs a lot of money. But they don't know what exists over on the science side of the aisle so that they can truly vet out or validate a solution they're going to bring in or deploy inside an employer organization. And so you've got this really kind of dysfunctional and fragmented and broken kind of system of delivery and administration that has to be brought together. And that really is where we've focused is, is in, in trying to create competency and understanding and unique and critical insights into the area of this and on both sides of the aisle. What's broken? Why is it broken? How do we fix it? And once we fix it, what does it look like? It also could just be maybe conventional wisdom suggests that this is an intractable issue, MSK, musculoskeletal issues, that there is no solution, that, you know, it kind of is what it is and we're dealing with what we're we're dealing with. It's like, you know, Roger Bannister and the four minute mile, you know, like they said a human couldn't right. <laughs> couldn't beat the four minute yeah. mile. And then once Roger Bannister did it, there was like his record was broken within the year, I think. It, once you realize that something can be done, then you get a number of people that are, are doing it. So maybe we're just in the place where everyone just thinks it is what it is at this point. Yeah. I think you're right on the advisor consultant broker side. I think they've basically resided to the fact that there isn't a solution. So they've just kind of given up on it. On the provider side, they believe it has a favorable natural history. So they think if you just leave people alone, they'll be okay. And they're right 50% of the time. They will be fine. Now they're re the system again later on, but they've really kind of assigned this kind of low level of, of importance to this particular condition category. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that they see these people just disappear and go away and vanish for a long time. And so they think there's a favorable history there and they don't know what else to do for them. And so they just kind of, they sweep it under the rug and they just kind of ignore it. Uh, I think all of those things kind of contribute to the dysfunction we've got. Exactly like you just said, unless there's a very well-defined feedback loop, then how is anybody supposed to know whether the patient got better or just went somewhere else? (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, we don't we don't run healthcare the way, let's say, Michelin builds just a tire. You know, when you walk into a Michelin plant and and you walk up to a production line or to a particular workstation there, there's a big screen TV that shows everything in red, green, and yellow. Okay, everybody knows where they are from a safety and a production perspective and a quality perspective today. In healthcare, we don't have that. Patients flow into an office and they get whatever that office has been trained to deliver. Nobody's there tracking that patient's experience, results, or outcomes, not only during that encounter, but across time for that condition that they're trying to manage at that point in time. And and then nobody's pushing the data back to those providers that say, hey, guess what? The last thousand patients you managed with low back pain cost the system X. They don't ever see that information. And so they don't truly know what journey these patients are taking through the system and ultimately what sort of impact they're having on their results, their outcomes, and the cost of care for those people. So let's talk about IMC for a moment, which is the company that you're the CEO of. First of all, what does IMC stand for? Integrated Musculoskeletal Care. That would make sense. And obviously, you have put together this systemic way to treat MSK issues. 
your clients are primarily employers at this juncture? Employers, health plans, ACOs, health systems, primary care organizations. And so obviously that starts out with the precision diagnostics and then you feed data, I'm sure, through some kind of interface to those clinicians so that once they get the precision diagnostic, then based on all the data and feedback loops that you have you know, collected and aggregated and analyzed, you feed back to the clinician, this patient, you know, ding, 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 here's the right answer for this particular patient based on what we know. So correct. Yeah, we, we have standardized training that goes out to all of our providers, primary care, PT or Cairo, they follow the standardized protocols and try to get that diagnosis correct as often as possible and match patient to treatment. And then all of the data that flows off of that experience is entered by the patient into a database that, that we hold in the cloud and that we monitor and measure in real time. We can then identify outliers. The system is, is designed to flag cases that aren't passing through the system at the expected level of improvement. And every week we can give our providers a roster of cases that were flagged by the system that are going through their practice. And then they can sit in the following week in a grand rounds meeting and develop corrective actions for those patients. So we have a continuous kind of feedback loop that is showing the providers first and foremost, the quality metrics. How are your patients doing in your practice under your tutelage and your medical management? And then what follows that clinical quality data is the financial data that says, hey, oh, guess what? The per member per month or per member per year exposure for lives going through your platform are X versus Y out in the community or Y based on a historical analysis we did for this employer client that we've got. So you guys are truly being great stewards of the healthcare resources because you're driving up quality and you're driving down cost and representing the true health value equation. And how many of those outliers are due to the fact that the diagnosis wasn't right? I mean, there could be two issues here that, that I see. You know, number one, that they are actually an outlier. Another one was that maybe the treatment was suboptimally delivered, you know, like the PT person was new or something. And then the third one is that, that the diagnosis wasn't right to begin with. Without getting into too much detail, how do you ensure which the issue actually is so that your data doesn't become polluted? You know, we have the ability through our team-based grand rounds meetings to identify which one of those variables might be most likely because, you know, like you said, in some instances, it's they got the diagnosis wrong. It's the wrong body part. You're, you're treating the shoulder and it's actually their neck. It, depending on the experience of the provider, are they new to the system or are they, have they been in it in 10 years? You know, that number can range anywhere between, you know, 5% of the time to 20% of the time that they've actually gotten the, the treatment directed towards the wrong body part. In other instances, they're attempting to hold on too long. They've got somebody that's clearly a structural defect. They've got a problem that is intractable from a conservative care perspective, and they need a surgeon, but the patient may have suggested they don't want to go to surgery. And, you know, I'm afraid of that. And the, and the provider, of course, and is trying to do the right thing and, and take care of the patient and wants to hold on to them and try and get them resolved without escalating into that level of care. And, you know, that's probably about 5 to 10% of the time, once again, depending on the experience level of that provider. You know, those variables are the ones that most commonly introduce an outlier circumstance or event to the system. And we constantly try to react to them by feeding back this information and then once again, having them engaged in that weekly grand rounds meeting where they're working with a team of their peers to develop corrective actions for every case that's been flagged by the system. So they are always getting better and better and better at doing their job. What IMC offers, it sounds like, is this underlying platform. 
we have a combination of our own clinics. We, we wholly own some clinics uh, in key communities where we've got, you know, large concentrations of lives that we manage and control. And in other instances, we have an affiliate network of clinics that are spread all over the country where we have highly trained and standardized providers that are already operating in a region. And we just connect them to an employer-sponsored plan or to a, a, an ACO or health system that, that has business that they want to drive towards them. We help those entities get consistent volume under an incentivized model into their practices through our relationships with self-funded plans and other payer purchaser organizations. So if I am an, an employer or a provider organization or any of the others that might have an interest in improving the quality of muscular skeletal care while reducing the cost, where would I go for more information about IMC, Chad? We've got a website, uh, www.imcpt.com. There's a, an opportunity on there to request information about the programs that we offer. Chad Gray, thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Value podcast today. Thank you so much, Stacey. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.